31, an interview with the Sacred Mother. If you remember, this is <coughs> the Guru Yogananda Ji interviewing Kashi Muni, who was Lahiri Mahasaya's wife. And then he also talks about and gives us in a couple of stories of uh, another woman disciple, Abhoya. The last story we left it at is Abhoya, who has lost eight children to miscarriages or if the child was born, died shortly after. And prays to Lahiri Mahasaya that her ninth child may live. And of course, that's what happens, but with a little bit, Lahiri Mahasaya always you know, make sure during that night you keep that candle burning and no matter what you do, don't let that candle... It's just like they're always asking that we put out something from our side as well. No miracle can be drawn haphazardly, so to speak. The universe can only respond to energy given. <clears throat> so here we are now and we continue with the stories. And this is now of a... A male disciple of, Mas of Lahiri Mahasaya's. One of Lahiri Mahasaya's disciples, the Venerable Kali Kumar Roy, related to me many fascinating details of his life with the Master. I was often a guest at his Banaras home for weeks at a time. Wow, what a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> Being in Lahiri Mahasaya's home for weeks at a time. I observed that many saintly figures, Danda Swamis, arrived in the quiet of the night to sit at the Guru's feet. Sometimes they would engage in discussion of meditational and philosophical points. At dawn, the exalted guests would depart. I found during my visits that Lahiri Mahasaya did not once lie down to sleep. It's very poignant, especially for us today. Mm -hmm. Many of us tonight are going to do an all-night meditation, just chant and meditate from 11pm uh, until 5am. And it's lovely, you'll hear this kind of thing a couple of times in different places that during the day, a lot of Le disciples of Lahiri Mahasaya were mostly householders, people who had regular lives, you know, they'd come and are here, are there. But it was at night you know, during the midnight time, during the very late night, early morning times, mm -hmm. that some of those disciples came, or those you wouldn't even know are disciples, some renunciates living in Himalayan caves coming down just to see their Guru take his blessings and go. And that period where they didn't sleep all night and they were just communing or connecting with one another from that, in fact, the very period we will be meditating tonight is... Um, it's very special to know that we'll be trying to get into that attunement mm -hmm. with Lahiri Mahasaya as we practice our Guru Purnima celebration tonight. <clears throat> During an early period of my association with the Master, I had to contend with the opposition of my employer, Roy went on. He was steeped in materialism. I don't want religious fanatics on my staff, he would sneer. If I ever met your charlatan guru, I shall give him some words to remember. So we all have somebody in our lives, maybe not this strong, but you know, there's always somebody triggering us against our love, our devotion, our sincerity on the spiritual path. You know, I guess they, they're part of strengthening our faith or if they're able to shake our faith, they're also a reminder of <laughs> our faith isn't strong enough in the first place. This alarming threat 
failed to interrupt my regular program. I spent nearly every evening in my guru's presence. One night, my employer followed me and rushed rudely into the parlor. He was doubtless fully bent on uttering the pulverizing remarks he had promised. No sooner had the man seated himself than Lahiri Mahashaya addressed the little group of about 12 disciples. Would you all like to see a picture? When we nodded, he asked us to darken the room. Sit behind one another in a circle, he said, and place your hands over the eyes of the man in front of you. So, odd request suddenly. <laughs> All right, everybody sit in a circle and take your hands and close the eyes of the person I'm in sure front. I'm sure disciples must have felt like, wow, let's, I mean, he's going to do something with somebody <laughs> else's karma. I mean, when, when a guru comes up with this kind of requests and asks this, you know, unusual, uh, scenes, I mean, you know something is at stake. I mean, one disciple or the other is going to um, take a step farther uh, on the path. I was not surprised to see my employer also following, albeit unwillingly, the master's directions. In a few minutes, Lehri Mahashaya asked us what we were seeing. Sir, I replied, a beautiful woman appears. She wears a red-bordered sari and stands near an elephant-ear plant. All the other disciples gave the same description. The master turned to my employer. Do you recognize that woman? Yes, the man was evidently struggling with emotions new to his nature. I have been foolishly spending my money on her, though I have a good wife. I am ashamed of the motives which brought me here. Will you forgive me and receive me as a disciple? If you lead a good moral life for six months, I shall accept you. The master enigmatically added, otherwise I won't have to initiate you. Now, while we see over here this man kind of having a change of heart, you know, having this moment of regret, this understanding that, oh no, what I've been doing with my life hasn't been good. And so kind of beautifully, you can say to a certain degree says, will you forgive me and not just forgive me, accept me as your disciple. But the interesting thing is that the Guru just doesn't, it's not about you know, oh, you know, I've not been so good. Oh, and now I know somebody can help me. Will you take me as your disciple? You know, that's how we, we see the guru-disciple relationship. <clears throat> as, acha, this person can help me. Acha, here I can get something out of this thing. Chalo, let me just follow this. And you see often this same attitude when people come, say, for to learn meditation or to learn certain techniques, especially on our path. You know, you read about Kriya or you've heard about it or somebody tells you about it and you say, oh, what's this thing? Let's go check it out. And you're like, I'm just ready. My life is, I just, everything has been brought me to this point. I'm ready. Give me this thing. You know, give me this technique. And of course, even here, Lahiri Mahashaya doesn't say, oh, wow, you've got a change of heart. Oh, you want to be my disciple? Of course, of course, I'll make you my disciple. He's not interested in that kind of disciple because he knows the motivation behind this person's shift is really not true. 
because we all have moments where we feel a little repentant we all have moments when we feel we want to shift something in our lives or change but it's not a sincere enthusiastic it's just that moment so what does lahiri mashaya do to see what in fact is behind this person's intention he says if you lead a good moral life for 6 months really not even that much of a he's not even like giving him if you meditate every day and if you like practice all the yamas and the niyamas and if you you know stay up all night or if you give up all food i mean he's just like 6 months ke liye you just lead a regular normal moral life then i will accept you sometimes you see the same thing oh you want to learn you know you want to be initiated into kriya yoga all right let's just see for 6 months if you can keep that desire strongly in your heart 6 months bas aur kuch bhi nahi yani ki lifetimes come after lifetimes when you are ready and then another time you hear there's this story with baba ji where one guy comes and says i want to be your disciple you know climbs up on these uh, the himalayas somehow finds baba ji in the mountains where it's like that itself is a miracle ki <laughs> how did you find him and baba ji says na you're not ready in your present state and the man says if you don't accept me as your disciple i'll i'll die right now i'll jump off this cliff and i'll die right now baba ji says all right then die jump and what does the man do he does jump <laughs> because he he realizes what does baba ji say to him i cannot accept you in this present state so there's something in you that's not quite ready but yeah why don't you jump and the man does jump he dies <laughs> baba ji sends his disciples down brings the man up revives him resurrects him from death and says now you're ready now I'll accept you so you have to do something you see again and again we see this theme repeating there is no free am i aa gaya hu yahan pe bhai i have come here you know <laughs> what a great honor to you guys that i have decided to accept your path or i accept you you know we couldn't care less and the guru couldn't care less and today especially being the day of guru purnima us who are disciples need to think about this too because naam pe disciples banna doesn't actually make you a disciple having taken the discipleship vow even actually doesn't make you a disciple ha- practicing your kriya yoga every day even particularly doesn't make you a disciple what makes you a disciple is that relationship that you live with the guru anything you want to add Well, maybe a couple of things here about this story. First of all, how the guru exposes a fault within us, and that's how the guru works. He may not tell you. He may not point out outwardly <coughs> what the fault, the weakness, the tendency we have to overcome. but but he will give us the inner vision to see where that weakness or tendency is and create such emotional turmoil within us i mean giving us such a feeling of oh my god that's so wrong from my side to keep behaving that way that i just need to do something immediately and that's the beauty when we see something that we want to really work on within ourselves the moment you recognize the moment that grace comes into your life when you become aware that wow i have to work on that we have to work on it immediately 
because here what Lahiri Mahashaya is saying, okay, you have become aware of your fault, what are you going to do with it right now? And I'm going to give you only a period of six months, which is really nothing. And sometimes for each one of us, when we recognize a fault within us, we have a very little window to work with that weakness. I mean, it's like almost uh, a spiritually astrological <coughs> window of good karma once we have recognized that weakness because some sort of power from the guru comes with that recognition. So if we do something right away, that very day, that very week, that very month, for the next six months, we will have the power to change really a, a karma, huge one. So I would say that from this story, uh, this really struck me like, Every time I realize I have to meditate, I have to sit and meditate. Because if we keep postponing the process, I mean, every day we go through this. Okay, I'll meditate a little bit later, and later, and later, and the time goes by and you have not meditated. Then the next day, and the following day, and six months go by, and if you don't make the change, that window of good karma, we miss it. Mm. So I would say um, for many of us who are doing a, a serious inner work, don't just be satisfied by recognizing you have a fault or you have you know, something to overcome. Oh, I'm like that. Uh, no, <laughs> change it and do it fast because if that period of grace where you have a little bit more power, where you feel a little bit more enthusiastic about recognizing something within yourself, draw the grace of the Guru and make that change because it may not come back again with the same intensity and the same determination to want to change. So that would be, um, yeah, one of the main points that really I liked. Over here there's this other line which he sort of says of course if you live a good moral life for six months I shall accept you but then he adds otherwise I won't have to initiate you mm -hmm. and then it goes on to say for three months my employer refrained from temptation then he resumed his former relationship with the woman two months later he died Thus, I came to understand my guru's veiled prophecy about the improbability of the man's initiation. Interesting, this whole <laughs> drama, isn't it? Well, if you don't do it, then I just won't even have to initiate you. It's not even that I don't want to accept you. I just won't have to. And as Narayani is rightly saying, it's just karma comes, something else happens. People, you know, they're there. They're saying, I want this. I want to give my life to, you know, a, a true path. I want to aspire towards transformation, maybe even freedom, maybe even moksha, whatever it is. But then two months, three months, four months, they put the energy out. And then at the end you say, if you don't do it, I won't even have to because some other karma is going to take you. In this particular case, death was this man's karma. And it's amazing that Lahiri Mahashaya didn't even use fear mm -hmm. to try to persuade him to change. I mean, that's like 
fascinating. How many of us, how many parents use the tool of fear to their children to force them to change? And I'm sure the Guru sees so many threats and so many dangerous moments in our lives and still he doesn't use our bad karma to make us afraid. Therefore, we act or behave in a particular way, you know, motivated by fear, not because we really want to change. And, and this is like, Wonderful, really. I, I love the fact that Lahiri Mahashaya didn't say you have to change, otherwise you will die. <laughs> you know, it is otherwise I, I leave it up to you. Up to you. You decide your own karma. I won't even interfere in manipulating um, the motivation behind why you need to change. Lahari Mahashaya had a very famous friend, Swami Trailanga, who was reputed to be over 300 years old. The two yogis often sat together in meditation. Trailanga's fame is so widespread that few Hindus would deny the possibility of truth in any story of his astounding miracles. If Christ returned to earth and walked the streets of New York, displaying his divine powers, it would cause the same excitement that was created by Trilanga decades ago as he passed through the crowded lanes of Banaras. One moment here, just like a very fun thing last night I have in this image. Nowadays we have all these, you know, influencers <laughs> on Instagram, on Facebook and, you know, motivational speakers and life coaches and all that. I was thinking, wow, I mean, these guys were the spiritual influencers of that time, you know, that period. I mean, they would just walk people crowded in crowds. Taking selfies follow, with them. Take, yeah, maybe, who knows, but, you know, I mean, like, very famous friend. I mean, you just say like it was very famous. He had a following and he awakened, awoken, awoken people's curiosity. I mean, like, and I was thinking last, last night, wow, like these are the kind of influencers we should uh, follow or have lives, more yeah. of. On many occasions, the Swami was seen to drink with no ill effect the most deadly poisons. Thousands of people, including a few who are still living, of course, again, we're talking 1946 here, or even earlier, 1930s, have seen Trilanga floating on the Ganges. For days together, he would sit on top of the water, which means he was just floating, you know, because that light was his body, that he could just sit on the surface of the water, or remain hidden for very long periods under the waves. A common sight at the Banaras bathing ghats was the Swami's motionless body on the blistering stone slabs, wholly exposed to the merciless Indian sun. By these feats, Trilanga sought to teach men that a yogi's life does not depend upon oxygen or ordinary conditions and precautions. Whether he were above water or under it, and whether or not his body lay exposed to the fierce solar rays, the master proved that he lived by divine consciousness. Death could not touch him. 
The yogi was great not only spiritually, but physically. His weight exceeded 300 pounds. <laughs> a pound for each year of his life. How much would that be in kilograms? 300, like 150, 140 mm. kgs. So that's fairly large. As he ate very seldom, the mystery is increased. A master, however, easily ignores all usual rules of health. When he desires to do so for some special reason, often a subtle one known only to him, to himself. Great saints who have awakened from the cosmic Mayak dream and realized this world as an idea in the divine mind can do as they wish with the body, knowing it to be only a manipulatable form of condensed or frozen energy. That's a fun part about so many different saints, isn't mm. it? Just all sorts of realities exist. <laughs> now, Trilanga Swami is like this really large, you know, I mean, somebody we'd call like obnoxiously fat, perhaps 150 kilos. And that's it. That's the body he chose for what particular reason? Not eating at all, yet being able to maintain or, you know, ever growing in his size. Some saints are like, you know, thin and like you can count all their ribs. So it's just like some saints are very particular about what they eat and they're like all about diet and they're really into health. Some saints couldn't care less about it. And it just shows you this wide range of, also to a certain degree, wide range of abilities for us to tune into them in different ways. Sometimes, oh yeah, it's very helpful. Let me mean, let me be very aware of what I'm putting into my body, especially those of us who are uh, much more governed by material realities becoming aware but that sometimes that same process can make us a little more fanatical a little bit more attached to oh my goodness my body didn't get its vitamins today and you know I didn't have my supplements today and then suddenly we start feeling Aaj kya hone wala hai. so it's just like while we need to be responsible we also need to break this hypnosis that somewhere outside some formula exists for perfect health for perfect body, for perfect vitality, other than God. Because there doesn't exist any other perfect formula. Mostly because we've lived such varied lifetimes, sometimes completely abusing the bodies that we received. So even in this life, if you suddenly, because of that awareness, you choose to live a very regulated, healthy lifestyle, you can still fall sick because the karma continues from lifetimes of abuse. So we can't just see what we do right now as the only cause or the only way to live. Let's be responsible, but people like Trilanga Swami are always trying to show us, like all these masters, but at the end of the day, until you are united in God, you will always be subject to the dualities of health, sickness, feeling good, feeling not so good. And it also shows that each master comes with a very particular mission mm. and to teach something very specific on the path or uh, focusing on a specific aspect of it. So it's, it's important for us to recognize that each one of them uh, have a message from God and there is no competition among themselves. You can now see Swami Trilanga just loved being in the presence of Lahiri Mahashaya in the same way he would with other saints. So 
um, it's good for us to respect other paths, other teachers, other gurus, because they have their own disciples, and those disciples need this particular teaching according to their karma and good and God is the one who is just sending down all these variety streams of consciousness uh, according to what we need and Swami Kriyananda used to say please just don't say my guru is the best or my guru is better than your guru no my guru is uh, what I need right now to keep you know, overcoming, uh, overcoming my karma and to keep uh, balancing certain tendencies or certain extremes that I have accumulated from the path and, you know, misunderstandings. Those physical scientists now understand that matter is nothing but congealed energy. Fully illumined masters have long passed from theory to practice in the field of matter control. This is a nice one because even scientists today who can tell you everything about, oh no, this is what the universe is, but it's all just theory because we can't live in that way. The scientists may tell you that this is this matter doesn't exist, it's only energy and it's only vibration, but even that scientist knowing fully well, having all the mathematical data to prove it, he still lives exactly as if this were just matter and that's the difference between philosophy and actual illumination and experience so that's what we should constantly go for never use theory and philosophy to back your understandings use your own experience to back it trilanga always remained completely nude so not only is he large not only is he 300 years old he's also completely naked all the time the harassed police of Banaras came to regard him as a baffling problem child. The natural Swami, like the early Adam in the Garden of Eden, was utterly unconscious of his nakedness. There's a little cute little story of him constantly being thrown in jail because he was nude, you know. I mean, back then, of course, the police was the British police, even if they were Indian. So I don't think they were much appreciative of people walking around naked. Today, when somebody knows he's a sadhu, he's a naga sadhu, nobody bothers him. But back then, perhaps there was a little bit more. So we'll move. But, yeah, oh, but you want it, to say something? No, I just like it gives you the glimpse of what a character <laughs> yeah. this Swami was. You know, uh, some time ago we were just talking a few of us the kind of dreams we we have, the kind of weird dreams. And uh, when I was reading this last night, I remembered that sometimes I have dreamed that I'm naked in the dream. And in the dream, I'm just trying to cover myself because I just think that all these people in front of me are just, you know, seeing me. And I try to protect myself because I'm so body consciousness. And in the dream itself, it's like, oh, my God. And last night when I was reading this like this, you know, like Swami just walking, you know, everything moving around and completely beyond body consciousness you know sometimes we have even a pimple like oh my god they are just going to see these i mean we are so obsessed with our body with our form how we look to you know what other people's perception about us um, 
are and here it's just like forget about that you know come to that point where who cares once you are in god you know nothing can touch you nothing can bother you you know you are just so free from that notion of you know having a body that determines or makes you think this is who you are anyway i just had this <laughs> little moment like comparing myself my dreams <laughs> with this swami's reality the great yogi preserved a habitual silence so he was mostly a moni he kept moan most of the time in spite of his round face and huge barrel like stomach trilanga ate only occasionally after weeks without food he would break his fast with potfuls so he would either like weeks of not eating and then potfuls of clabbered milk offered to him by devotees i had to look up what clabbered milk is and it's some kind of a fermented very thick buttermilk of sorts where you let milk sit for a while let it kind of get a little sour let it separate a little bit and then you'd make a drink out of it a skeptic and these always there are always these skeptics aren't they a skeptic once determined to expose trilanga as a charlatan a large bucket of calcium lime mixture used in whitewashing walls was placed before the swami so chuna you know like what we use on the walls very recently uh, rajesh and abhiruchi were working with uh, what was it white cement which has some of it is this calcium lime mixture plus other things and they were using the white cement and you know they didn't have any gloves so they're using it with their hands and just within a couple of hours or even minutes i don't know their hands started burning and blistering and their feet wherever they walked on it so it's really a very strong uh, substance this chuna and today they've refined the whole process a lot more back then they were really working with just this raw calcium and lime mixture so somebody places in front of him an entire pot of this calcium lime mixture and says master the materialist says in said in mock reverence i have brought you some clabbered milk please drink it trilanga unhesitatingly drained to the last drop the container full of burning lime in a few minutes the evil doer fell to the ground in agony help swami help he cried i am on fire forgive my wicked test the great yogi broke his habitual silence scoffer he said you did not realize when you offered me poison that my life is one with your own isn't that amazing so it's like just because trilanga was completely united with this man's consciousness as well whatever he experienced just naturally got transferred to that other fellow except for my knowledge that god is present in my stomach as in every atom of creation the lime would have killed me now that you know the divine meaning of boomerang never again play tricks on anyone the well-pured sinner healed by trilanga's words slunk feebly away 
here Yogananda brings a very interesting point now. He says, the reversal of pain, where the other fellow had to experience the pain, was not due to any volition of the master. So it wasn't like Trelanga was eating this and he was like, I know this guy is bad and so I'm going to now teach him a lesson and I'm going to transfer this pain to him. So it was not really that Trilanga was planning this and scheming this whole ahaha, ah, now we'll show him, let, let his karma come back to him. So it wasn't due to any volition of the master, but came about through the unerring application of the law of justice, which upholds creation's farthest swinging orb. So essentially, of course, he's talking about karma. Once it goes in this direction, it's always going to swing in the opposite. However, he says here, men of God realization like Trilanga allow the divine law to operate instantaneously. They have banished forever all thwarting cross currents of ego. That's a very interesting term, thwarting cross currents of ego. What does that mean? It means that we've done so many things in our lifetimes. Like, just continue. We've been good, we've been bad, we've been helpful, we've been completely unhelpful, we've been selfless, we've been selfish, we've worked only for, you know, our own recognition and our own fame and power, and we've worked for the upliftment of mankind as well. We've done it all in so many lifetimes that our ego is, you can say, an amalgamation of all those different movements. So when karma comes, that's why we're not able to see cause and effect so easily because there are just all these constant movements. So when karma comes into the picture, it has to contend into this movement, it has to kind of just get added to this movement and you never know when that karma is going to naturally then come to fruition. It could be in this life itself, it could be coming from previous lifetimes. It could then play out in future lifetimes of what you are doing now. Therefore, we constantly feel the world is so unfair, isn't it? All oh, these rich people who are just live such selfish and indulgent lives, look at them, they're always happy, they're doing whatever they want. Whereas us, you know, we're trying to live these moral lives and we're so hardworking and still life is so hard and we have to suffer so much. And we just somehow think that uh, it just doesn't feel right. There's so much division, there's so much difference. And it's really this thwarting cross-current of ego that doesn't allow cause and effect to manifest as clearly and as plainly as it ought to. Here, however, he says, like Trilanga, all men of God realization, because they have no cross-current of ego, they have no other kind of vacillating energy that could he is like, Agar ye aisa hil rahe, when karma comes in, it has to now join this movement and see when is it going to find the right circumstance and the right moment to come into play. But in this particular case, because Trilanga Swami was involved and he didn't have any cross current of ego, karma could play out instantaneously. Now, this may seem in this particular case like a bad thing almost, but this is in fact an amazing thing. And that's another, you know, powerful reason to have the presence of the Guru in our lives. Because you can almost say if you've got, a, and this requires not having a Guru, but being attuned to your Guru, which means you and your Guru's consciousness as often as possible unite and come together closer and closer. The farther away they are, 
the difference remains. You remain in your ego cross current and the guru remains this pure channel. But the closer we get means that now your karma actually flows through them into you. And it, they use themselves, you can almost say, as a prism, as a filter, as a means to draw. And that is why spiritual progress becomes hastened with the Guru. Because that which we need comes to us more rapidly, more often, more clearly. Our ability to see cause and effect becomes much more clear. And that's another amazing way these great masters try their best to help us. They use the lack of their ego to allow our own karma to express in our lives. And isn't that just amazing? Karma that maybe perhaps wasn't mine uh, or wasn't to be expressed because I wouldn't be ready. Now, because their consciousness is a part of my consciousness, they're able to bring that karma in so that it helps move my spiritual progress further. I mean, these are things that you know, when we think about, oh, it's good to have a guru and when you have to sometimes convince people why a guru is needed. These are the things that are so subtle that you'll never really be able to communicate in truth because even we've not fully understood the true role of the guru. It's just so hard. It's so beyond our comprehension. And when I read this, I was just like, wow, that's another thing. Just this tiny little thing which we wouldn't even really think about. But there it is. He's using his own lack of ego if we're able to unite a little bit with that consciousness to manifest into our lives a certain rapidity of evolution that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do ourselves. Anyway, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Any thought on that? No, I was thinking that, you know, every self-realized master is aware of absolutely everything. I mean, that divine awareness, Yogananda call it, center everywhere, circumference, nowhere. So whatever we do, the master is able to feel it, to sense it, to channel that, and, and then help us to experience that within ourselves. I remember Yogananda telling to some of his disciples, you have a sour taste, <laughs> or uh, I know every thought you think, or you know, like Lahiri Mahashai at some point, he said, I am in so many bodies that I don't know which body I need to move or you know being in this a war going on and lahiri mahashaya feeling that he's one of those soldiers being shot or being killed and then he has to remember that he's not indeed in that battlefield but he's in his living room in benares so when we are getting closer and closer and closer to our guru and i don't mean physically closer to the guru or even the living guru but closer to that consciousness of the guru whatever they are experiencing will be able to experience ourselves as well and as Shurja was saying karma gets accelerated and when many people ask us like they want to come and live in the community and be part of the ashram and be part of this flow I mean um, for us is 
are you ready to grow faster? <laughs> I mean, are you ready to face your own karma? If yes, please come right away. Don't even wait. But if you are going to start complaining and refusing, rejecting every time that your own karma comes to you, then it's going to be tough because this is what the spiritual path is all about. And Kriya Yoga is all about accelerates your karma, brings up those things that need to be worked out. The automatic adjustments of righteousness often paid in an unexpected coin, as in the case of Trilanga and his would-be murderer. Can you imagine that this guy was just going to like kill Trilanga for me? Hopefully he'll be able to finish the chapter. <laughs> Alright, we'll try to finish the chapter. Can you imagine that this guy was about to kill Trilanga Swami? Anyway. Asaj are hasty indignance at human injustice. Vengeance, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This is from the Bible. I love these words. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That it's my job to balance out people's karmas. It's my job to give what people deserve. Why are you humans thinking that you need to involve? Why do you think you need to tell people what they need to do or how they need to fix? Why do you think you need to punish them in the ways that you feel that they ought to or they deserve? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. What need for man's brief resources the universe duly conspires for retribution because the universe, that's the job. It's a constantly auto-correcting, auto-balancing reality. Dull minds discredit the possibility of divine justice, love, omniscience and immortality. Airy scriptural conjectures, they say. This insensitive viewpoint, all less before the cosmic spectacle, arouses a train of events which brings its own awakening. Sometimes when Yogananda writes, it's like, wow, what does he mean? This insensitive viewpoint that there is no divine justice, as we talked about, rich are getting richer, poor are getting poorer, rude people succeed, kind people are getting trampled over. So we feel there's no justice in this world. But this viewpoint, all less before the cosmic spectacle, arouses a train of events which brings its own awakening. Eventually, what Yogananda means is lifetime after lifetime, circumstance after circumstance, karma after karma, you get to that awakening yourself and you realize, well, God's taking care of it all. He's figured it out, all of it. I don't need to be involved anymore. I don't need to say those bad words to this person anymore. I don't need to conspire in my mind of how I'm going to teach somebody a lesson because God's got it all figured out. The omnipotence of spiritual law was referred to by Christ on the occasion of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. As the disciples and the multitude shouted for joy and cried, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, certain Pharisees complained of the undignified spectacle. Master, they protested, rebuke thy disciples. So if you can't quite visualize what's going on, Christ, who is a very controversial figure at the time, where the 
kind of the religious Jewish hierarchy completely dislikes him because at that time the religion of the time was very austere very like philosophical theological there was no no show of your love for God because God was a judge and all you could do with the judge is just place him yourself at his mercy and maybe sometimes he'll give you what's right maybe sometimes he'll give you what's wrong all depends on how much money you give or how many sacrifices you make so that was the religion understanding of that time whereas Christ on the other hand was like we need to love God we need to sing his praises we need to talk to him so he's got all these disciples and they're coming into Jerusalem and they're all shouting and rejoicing heaven you know glory in heaven and peace unto all and they're just happy it's like us you know like bhajan kar and chanting kar and we're just walking through the streets and somebody comes and says why are you making so much of a ruckus rebuke thy disciples some of these um, priests tell jesus i tell you jesus replied that if these should hold their peace the stones would cry out immediately he says even if you shut my disciples up the stones will begin to sing god's praises that's how powerful this is and if you ever heard the story of um, sant nyaneshwar and there is this moment in his life if we saw this movie once with swami krishna and the very old movie in which sant nyaneshwar as a little boy starts reciting the gita and he's not allowed to recite the gita because he's not a brahmin and he's not you know the right you know whatever he's his caste doesn't allow him so the priests get really angry and they hold his mouth shut while he's reciting the gita and the moment they hold his mouth shut there was a buffalo nearby and the buffalo suddenly starts reciting the gita and they realize like wow if i so this is what christ is saying here you can silence these disciples you can silence the people who love god but then the very stones will begin to sing his praises i'm going to move on forward there's a little explanation that yogananda gives that i would love for you guys to all read but we continue our story is there anything you wanted to add from that the grace of the christ like christ like yogi trilanga was once bestowed on my sajo mama maternal uncle One morning uncle saw the master surrounded by a group of devotees at a Banaras ghat he managed to edge his way close to Trilanga whose feet he touched humbly uncle was astonished to find himself instantly freed from a painful chronic disease so again that's what's happening here that same flawless mirror that completely empty you know kind of uh, glass window that just allows the sunlight to come through is what these saints are and if you can get in attunement with them if you can get in their presence again as narayani said not physically but in them even there were 100 perhaps people in trilanga swami's physical presence at that time but it was only because his uncle got attuned to trilanga in the process of touching his feet that that miracle happened and it didn't happen with everybody else it's not like every person who brushed past trilanga was getting healed and having some miraculous visions one person here another person there completely unrelated but it's because their consciousness was getting attuned and that's what we need to be doing with the saints and with our gurus the only living 
known living disciple of the great yogi is a woman, Shankari Mai Jiu. Daughter of one of Trilanga's disciples, she received the Swami's training from her early childhood. She lived for 40 years in a series of lonely Himalayan caves near Badrinath, Kedarnath, Amarnath and Pashupatinath. So all Shiva-related places. The Brahmacharini, or woman ascetic, born in 1826, is now well over the century mark. Not aged in appearance, however, she has retained her black hair, sparkling teeth and amazing energy. She comes out of her seclusion every few years to attend the periodical melas or religious fairs. This woman saint often visited Lahiri Mahashaya. She has related that one day in the Barakpur section near Calcutta, while she was sitting with Lahiri Mahashaya, or sitting by Lahiri Mahashaya's side, his great guru Babaji quietly entered the room and held converse with them both. On one occasion, her master, Trilanga, forsaking his usual silence, honoured Lahiri Mahashaya very pointedly in public. A disciple objected. Sir, he said, why do you, a Swami and a renunciate, show such respect to a householder? And this is what Narayani was saying, you know, the respect of the saints that we should have for other parts, for other saintly people. And right here that Trilanga Swami is showing for Lahiri Mahashaya. But the disciples, like, as disciples, we are so confused, aren't we? My great Guru, how dare he and why would he show he's a renunciate, he's a Swami? I mean, our ideas of what it really means to love God are so completely out of whack sometimes. Swami renunciate and we say, naturally, that is the only way to love God. And he says, why would you honor just a regular householder? And what Trilanga says is just so beautiful. My son, Trilanga replied, Lahiri Mahashaya is like a divine kitten, remaining wherever the cosmic mother has placed him. While dutifully playing the part of a worldly man, he has received that perfect self-realization for which I have renounced even my loincloth. Thus ends that mm. chapter. How beautiful, isn't it? Man is I have been renouncing everything just to get a taste of that self-realization. And here he, doing everything he needs to do, living the life that Divine Mother has asked him to live. He's in that perfect realization. I like those words actually, like remaining wherever the Cosmic Mother has placed him. I mean, to me, reading that line, I just can't really feel in Lahiri Mahashaya zero resistance mm. from being uh, there, you know, in his living room, playing the role of a householder. I mean, not, not even for once pushing out that dharma even mentally. You know, when, when you embrace, when we embrace fully where we are, the karma that has been given to us in this lifetime to work on, the people that are around us. I mean, as we learn to embrace that fully, trusting that 
that's what Divine Mother wants. I mean, grace comes in and then changes happen, but the changes doesn't come or they don't start because we reject something or because we want to run away from it or because we just don't like it or because it's too difficult, too complicated. But first, if we accept that situation by God-given gift and we embrace it, there is relaxation. And when relaxation happens, we ultimately open ourselves to miracles. And I, I, I love the fact that Lahiri Mahashaya is a living representative of complete acceptance of his dharma and his duties as a father, as a wife, as a friend. I mean, and, and you can see also throughout this chapter the generational saintly people at that, you know, during that period. I just love the fact that so many of them, I mean, where are these saints nowadays? I mean, you cannot go to a pilgrimage. You just don't see these kind of saints anymore. Maybe because we are not ready to really receive what they have to offer. They are all gone. I remember <laughs> Swami Kriyananda always saying towards the end of his life. I remember when I came to India in the 50s, in the 60s, you could see more of these saintly people. You would go to the Himalayas, you would go to other places, and, and you could feel there was, you know, always someone saintly worth visiting and absorbing from them. But nowadays, they, they, they don't exist. What happens to them? I mean, he asked that question himself. I mean, where are the saints of this time of our generation? I mean, where are they? <laughs> I guess we'll just have to work on becoming them. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Definitely. Anyway, thank so, you so much for joining us. Uh, blessed Guru Purnima to all of us. I hope you take this day seriously as mm -hmm. um, you know just as a practice to offer yourself a little bit more powerfully to a saint to your own guru to mm -hmm. whoever in whatever form you are able to do that god bless Jai you guru. Jai guru